0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Standing Room Only Podcast. Yes, I am Ben Standing and I cover the Washington football team for The Athletic. Thanks to everybody for um, being patient as I get back to some sort of normalcy here after taking a bit of a break uh, away from the real world. I'll sort of talk about that in a quick second, but I'm back with another episode. I've got two great guests. First off, on the Washington football team front, our friend Chris Russell from the Team 980 and Sports Illustrated joined me. We, we discussed uh, sort of in the in the wake of last week's news about the NFL punishing the franchise and, and, and tangentially, therefore, owner Dan Snyder or not punishing him, depending how you want to look at it. Um, we discussed the idea of Ron Rivera, who already had a lot of power here we got into the idea of just how much does he have relative to other coaches around the league. And what, if anything, does that power mean going forward as we're a few weeks away from training camp. And we got into some other things about the Washington football team as we get closer to training camp. And then uh, for the first time on the podcast had a special, had this special guest uh, NBA insider, Tom Haberstrow. I say NBA insider. He's also a top chef. Analyst, uh, which is a fantastic competition show, and we talked about both of those things. We got into the NBA finals, not so much the Suns versus the Bucks, but sort of what does this matchup of teams that are not sort of your traditional powers, they don't have uh, an, an obvious all time, all time, all time top tier legend in, in no LeBron James, no Steph Curry. What, what does that say, if anything, about where things are headed in the NBA? And what could that mean for a team like the Wizards, who have a couple of building blocks, obviously, in Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook? If the league starts flattening at the top, does that bode well, possibly, for the Wizards? Or, as we discussed, what should, should they perhaps go the other way and actually start to sell. We got uh, got Tom's views on that. Plus, we talked about the assistant coach front, and we talked a bunch about Top Chef. If you're into that show, I think you're going to really enjoy that part of the conversation as well. We talked about this recent season that was just concluded in Portland, the shit we talked about the show broadly. Um, and Tom, uh, he co-hosts, not only is he part of Dan Lebitard's Meadowlark Media um uh, n- new venture. Uh, he's also the co host of the Pack Your Knives podcast with Kevin Arnovitz. Tom and I used to be uh, teammates, I guess, at NBC Sports. Uh, that's a loose term. He was a big national guy, and I was a little, a, l- a little fish over here in, in DC, but nonetheless, we were both getting paychecks from the same company, and it was great to have him on. Um, you can, of course, if you are just kept, just joining this podcast, maybe you're a top chef person and you, uh, found found this on social media or you're just uh haven't yet, hadn't have yet to um join in are the fun here as we talk about primarily the washington football team but some wizards as well you can of course subscribe to the podcast on itunes or spotify or anywhere else you do your podcasting if you want to catch up on some recent podcasts before i went away uh for a couple weeks uh you can i interviewed ron rivera you can listen to that one-on-one and subsequently i've talked to um uh, John Machoda, our Dallas Cowboys insider, and a bunch of others. You can find that on iTunes and all those fun places. And, of course, you can read all my work on The Athletic when things will start getting cranked up again here pretty quick as training camp is, you know, we're, we're less than three weeks away from all that going on. Um, before I get to uh, to Chris and to Tom, just wanted to say, you know, like I, I did go away. And, and, you know, anybody who knows me personally knows that I don't really do vacations. Not, not by, not, not, um, I'm not anti vacation. Um, you know, when, when you did, um, you know, I've talked about my, my journey in the sports world here a bit uh, on this podcast and various other uh, platforms I've been on. And you know, when you're a freelancer, as I was for really most of the last ten years, um, you know, if you freelancer means if you don't work, you don't get paid, and I liked getting paid. Uh, it was kind of important for things like, you know, rent and food. So um, I almost never took vacation. I mean, like, yes, I would go to Las Vegas, but I would time it to go during the NBA Summer League. So I would be able to do freelance stories while I was there. Or maybe I would visit friends out of town, but I was always bringing my laptop uh, with me to, you know, to do some work in between some fun. Um, this was purely I went away. I took social media apps off my phone. Uh, I, I largely avoided people I actually went to Los Angeles where um that's not an unusual place to go was I actually had not been to LA since my I think I thought I thought about this was like my 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 teenage years I went there with my mother um we did sort of the standard touristy stuff going to you know Universal Studios and and uh, you know things like that uh, I didn't do any of that this time I literally closed off my brain as best I could I w- I I was uh, I I would wake up. I would go find a beach and I would sit on it, or mostly I would walk on it. Uh, I was sort of I was in the Marina del Rey area, um, which is great and which is right next to Venice Beach, which is obviously a very different world from from here. And uh, I would uh, you know really I would just I was just trying to cl- just get away from it all as best I as best I could. I really don't think I had other than like talking to like. Uh, whoever you know somebody whoever was uh, checking me in at a hotel or uh, the waiter waitress I don't think I was really talking to any other people in any real substantive way you know maybe who you know some a, a, a rando sitting at the at the you know at the bar stool next to me or somebody on the beach but like I really was doing my best to sort of catch my breath refresh regroup um and look, obviously, L.A. is an incredibly beautiful place. Um, you know, drove up to Malibu, drove down to Man- d- d- drove south to Manhattan Beach. I mentioned um, on went uh, talking to Tom that I went to a, a, a restaurant um, in uh, Playa del Rey, which is a little bit south of Marina del Rey, um, where um, a top chef, a former top chef winner, has a, has a restaurant, and it was it was cathartic. It was good. Um, that, that said, as I I, I was gone for. Well, I was in LA basically for like over a week, and over the second half of that time, I did start to plan to do a few things. Um, specifically, I went three things. I guess I would note one: I went to the to the famous comedy store, which is you know the place out there that all the legends, uh, uh, you know, some more or less got their start in some way. You know, at least of those who started in California. And uh, the, the the night I was there, didn't know who I was going to see. I bought tickets in advance, um, but Mark uh, Marin Uh, was up on stage, Daniel Tosh showed up, um, and a bunch of other really funny people, so that was a lot of fun. The next night, I went to the Dodgers game. I had never been to Dodger Stadium, had always wanted to go. Like, Camden Yards, for me, is my all-time goat, but Dodger Stadium, it's just off the charts. It's everything I thought it would be. Um, It's historic. It's not beautiful, like, in the, you know, sort of the more modern sense, but it's sort of like, think RFK stadium but like in your mind RFK stadium and then think like they it didn't it didn't it wasn't it wasn't it didn't it never reached a decrepit phase but they kept it sort of traditional and spruced it up a bit in a variety of ways and modernized and some yet still kept the old school charm that's the way Dodger Stadium is plus you have you know sunsets that are just you know you know they're just mind-blowing mind oh and by the way the game I went to <laughs> the Chicago Cubs threw a no-hitter. Yeah, that was at that game where the Cubs uh, a, a a a four, I think it was a four-person um uh group uh four-person effort throws a no-hitter against the Dodgers. Uh that was wild just the fact that it, you know. I know there's a lot of no-hitters, you know. It feels like there's a no-hitter every other day these days in in baseball, but, you know, nonetheless, I was at one of those games that that happened, so that was pretty cool. And then the day after that, um, I went to Suns Clippers game four of the Western Conference finals. Um, I was fortunate enough to get a, a ticket to the game, got a really good seat, Was had a shout out to a person who helped me on that front. And uh, that was pretty, pretty interesting to be at a game. You know, I, obviously I go to a lot of games, you know, pandemic world uh you know pre-pandemic post-pandemic all that but because i'm based here and i have historically covered all the teams here and you if you're in the media can't root for teams while you're in the press box and even if i'm as a fan like or in the stands not 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 as a with a media credential you know i'm still rooting for you know it's, it's hard for me i try to be real about this i try to if i'm gonna be covering these teams i've gotta keep the emotions out of check I'm not going to say that now I'm suddenly an L.A. Clippers superfan, but I allowed myself to get caught up in that game and and sitting with those fans who were who were really, you know, all in on the Clippers. And you could see them stressing over every moment. I really was trying to try to enjoy it in that um, in that capacity. That was the game where um, neither team could make a shot like the Clippers, I think, had. Twelve chances, twelve shots to either take the lead or tie the game in the fourth quarter, and miss them all. I think which was like the most shots missed under that circumstance in I don't know, was NBA history or a thousand years, whatever it was. Um, So I was at that game. um, So that was interesting. And uh, then uh, capped the trip. I I drove out to to Vegas. I'd always wanted to drive through the desert uh, from LA to Vegas, and that was interesting. In this little tiny. Uh, Chevy spark that I rented that I really didn't think was going to get up some of those mountainous hills, but the car did me right. Got me through. It was a fun trip. It was a good time. I'm not going to say I, I, uh, you know, found the meaning of life or, you know, removed all stress out of my world, but it was definitely good to get away. And now I'm excited to be back. I don't know if excited. That's maybe a bit of a stretch, but (laughs) I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be back here talking sports. Talking in this episode, Top Chef, and there's a lot to, uh, to 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 get to. I usually at these opening in this opening try to give you guys some thoughts on the football team, uh, you know, some some notes I've heard. But you know, I'm not gonna really, I don't really have that right now per se. Chris, uh, Chris, and I got into a few things though, so so you know, some some thoughts I had get into there. Uh, we'll get back into a bit more of a rhythm here going forward, and I've already got some fun interviews lined up, uh, including one with uh, Sam Cosme. Obviously, Washington's second-round pick. Uh, So plenty more to come here on the podcast. And Again, if you want to listen, make sure you subscribe uh, iTunes. And uh, I should have said this at the top, and I guess next time I'll say this at the top to drive home the point. But um, actually, you know, look, if if you're an iTunes person, you have a chance to drop a review and a rating, fantastic. Um, It's a help, a big help, I promise. Um, All right, enough of that. I just wanted to let you guys know where I was and what was going on and uh, back in the swing of things, and we will see what happens. Oh, you know, like I said, this is my first podcast back. I did the podcast last week when the Dan Snyder NFL news broke, but, you know, I have sort of a rush job, and and I didn't explain to you guys kind of where I was at, so that's what I wanted to do here. Um, All right, let's get to this. We're going to start off with Chris Russell talking about the Washington football team. Then we'll get to Tom Havistar talking about the Wizards NBA Finals where the league is headed and top chef, all that and more here on the standard group only podcast. All right. um, As promised, joining us here on the podcast, you know, him, you love him, Even if you don't want to admit it, he is Chris Russell from the team night 80 and somewhere warm in your hearts, Chris, Hmm. I appreciate the time. Hope you're doing well.
1: I'm doing good, Ben. Thanks for having me. I don't know if anybody loves me, actually, Uh, they might tolerate me um so you know i hopefully i don't i don't have as many haters as i once used to have but it's like I'm always th- to be with
0: you. it's like people think i like i, I hate lebron james because <laughs> sometimes i might be critical it's like i know in fact like he gives me something to talk about all the yeah, time so i have a exactly. you, you know you, you don't want somebody who's gonna who, who, who's in your world and then just leaves and you don't only remember it yeah exactly
1: exactly one thing in, in in this business you don't want to be like you know, to your point, boring or straddling the fence all the time, or I guess overly predictable, right? You know, we want to, we want to be fresh. We want to be creative. We want to be innovative. We want to be interesting, uh, but we also want to be true to ourselves. But, you know, usually the most boring are the hardest to listen to because like you said, they don't give you anything to really chew on you know, and uh, as a big guy, I like to chew on something, you know?
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And obviously with this team, there's constantly meat on the bone when it comes to topics. Um, We're about to start and literally neither one of us know what we're about to discuss because I don't really have much of an agenda. I talked about everything that happened with the NFL and Dan Snyder last week. So I don't really need to get into that, at least as a main topic, it perhaps will weave its way in a little bit. So Uh, You know, I told everybody I'm just getting back from vacation and trying to remember, like, who's on this team and what's going on. Um, And I I guess to sort of, I guess I just said not to talk about the dance hiders thing, but I I, do. There's one thing that sort of crosses my mind is we're now three weeks out from um, training camp or or roughly three weeks, whatever it is. Um, And that is with regards to Ron Rivera. Um, you know, Ron Rivera came in here when he was hired and we, you know, he was hired as a coach, but also as the one voice from the football side, we, we were told. And, and we were all wondering like, how is that going to play out? Right. We were just coming off a year where Dwayne Haskins was the first round pick the owner influenced that choice. And we've seen other times where people come in and they have power, but we'll, what does that mean? Really? We'll see. And we'll see here over time. But for now, I think it's fair to say, that at this point, you know, through two off seasons and one full, one actual regular season that Ron Rivera has been able to do what Ron Rivera wants to do. Um, You know, even with Dwayne Haskins, where He benched him, you know, after four games last year, that's not something I would think he would have been able to do if there was pressure from, um, from upstairs. Uh, But now we've reached almost another level because of the Dan Snyder situation not even so much the idea that he's stepping away from day-to-day operations, because again, if you're for to believe that Rivera is sort of controlling things, but it is to say that Ron Rivera's power has essentially increased now. I would argue from this now, because there's really nobody sort of looking, breathing down his neck in any way, shape or form. And there is no, there is no GM. He is, I mean, I know Martin Mayhew is the GM, but he's mm-hmm. the GM under Rivera. Mm-hmm. I said this the other day, I think Rivera may have more power than any single coach in the NFL. If you want to argue me, Belichick, fine, but Robert Kraft is significant. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like Belichick can do whatever he wants as evidenced by the Tom Brady situation mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. So I guess my wonder is if Rivera does in fact have all, I guess one, do you, do you concur with that? But then also like going forward here into this, into the right training camp and then the regular season what does that mean what what does it mean to have that power like a year ago I might have said well maybe he could bench Dwayne Haskins I don't know what that means now and I'm sort of curious I guess one again do you agree sort of the idea that Rivera has as much if not more power than Mm -hmm. any coach in the league and then two what does that power actually potentially mean as we start going into the season here
1: yeah so a couple of things I mean the only other coach that comes to mind and I think you're right about Belichick I mean make no mistake about it obviously Belichick has a lot of power but as you, like you correctly pointed out with the whole Tom Brady and ultimately Jimmy G situation, I think we all understand what happened uh, there. But let, let me say this, the only other coach, and I've talked about this myself, is that I could think of as Andy Reid in Kansas City. Um, Andy got rid of John Dorsey, a general manager that I think was hired, if if I'm not mistaken, when Andy took that job in Kansas City, what, eight years ago or whatever it was? Uh, and he got rid of him pretty quickly. And they were supposedly buddy-buddy. And I know Brett Veach is like, you know, the, the general manager in name, but let's make no mistake, Andy Reid runs that show. Ron has complete control, complete power. I thought that from the start when he was hired because Dan was desperate to get this sinking ship back on track. And we say, well, well, he's been desperate before. And while that's true, I think he was desperate 10 years ago when he hired Mike Shanahan. You know, Ben, I was around every day for that. He was desperate, but he was still impulsive. He was still maniacal. He was still controlling. He was still not, oh my God, this is really broken. You know, he, he knew it needed to be fixed, but he didn't think it was as bad then as it actually was. And it was bad. And now it's arguably, or before he hired Ron Rivera, or when he hired Ron Rivera, it was you know arguably 10 times worse than it was 10 years ago. Um, so the bottom line is, is I thought from the start, Dan would stay out of the way at least short-term, you know, meaning the first year or so, which he didn't, by the way, under Mike Shanahan, if people remember the Donovan McNabb trade. And I do truly believe Dan was very hands off uh, with the Darius Guy situation, cutting him immediately. Uh, Dan essentially wanted him in the draft, from what I was told. Um, then, you know, you mentioned the Dwayne Haskins situation. I-, I mean, sure, maybe you say, "Well, well," like Dan's presence kind of prevented a true training camp battle, which Ron said is his true regret. I could see that, but Ben, I, I think he was trying to figure out whether his intuition was right on Dwayne, which was that Dwayne was not the quarterback for him and his staff. And I think he took this job with that intuition. He was told that by several people. Uh, I'm sure you know, you've know you heard something reasonably similar, and he needed to find out one way or the other whether this kid could grow up and actually show him and prove him wrong. And I think when when he didn't, uh, it was you know again all bets are off which again further indicated Ron's strength and power and then on top of that even though they were sub 500 you win the division you show up in a playoff game you battle basically down to the wire with the eventual Super Bowl champions and Ron's power just goes and then you know you let him hire the GMs that he wants and you know the personnel people that he wants and gets rid of Kyle Smith and you you know, again, everything get brings in Curtis Samuel, brings in Ryan Fitzpatrick, brings in William Jackson the Third. Seemingly, by all accounts, has a a strong draft. I mean, the arrow just keeps pointing up and up and up and up. And like you said, eventually it might go down, but right now it's nowhere close to go. It's going to take a lot for it to go down. It's going to take maybe a three and. 14 season or a four and 13 type season for that arrow to start going down. So I think Ron has as much power as anybody in the national football league. And he probably deserves it.
0: When you said three and 14, I'm still forgetting that. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's the, uh, that's, that's yeah. what I, that's I, take...
1: I had to catch myself on the math there. We have to do new math. I feel
0: like that's going to be harder for me to keep track of more than calling the team by its form by, by not calling the team by its former name last right. year when that was a challenge um so like i said in terms of going forward so like i'm trying to think like when okay so we say that somebody has power right ultimately what does that really mean now ron Rivera already is the guy running the roster so you know if he wants to keep player x or y or, or whatever then then that's gonna that's gonna happen and by the way to your point about andy Reid, like at least when the chiefs make a trade it's still discussed like Brett Veach made this trade. Brett Mm -hmm. Veach is the one who gets quoted in a story about why they did this, that, or the other. Yes. Martin Mayhew was at a press conference or two with Ron Rivera, but like, I, I don't know when we're going to be in a world in which somebody will report that Martin Mayhew engineered the trade or right. the signing or whatever right. to do that, and that's where I think it's a. I don't disagree with you, but obviously Andy Reid, he's one of he's you know won a Super Bowl, was that another one? He's clearly a, a big deal, but
1: yeah, I, I even... mean I, I mean listen, and, and they can say whatever they want in Kansas City. Andy's rubber stamping everything, and, and you know I mean Veach might do the work, the legwork, but you know, here I I mean right? Am I wrong? Uh, Mayhew and Marty Herney, I mean, they made no bones about it. They were like, we work for Ron, you know, (laughs) like, like, you know, there there's no pretend here. Like, I think there was a pretend when it came to Mike Shanahan and Bruce Allen, like Mike Shanahan was thought to have been hired with complete and total unilateral control over everything. And that was never the case. That was not the case here in Washington, Uh, or at least Maybe contractually it was and spelled out that way, but that's not how the operation, you know, operated for lack of a better term and from the start. So I think it's very different now, 11 years later. And, you know, Ron's going to make some mistakes. I mean, I think, I think we saw some roster management stuff last year as Ron was completely overwhelmed uh, with all the different rules and whatever, and really only getting help from Rob Rogers uh, from an administrative standpoint, I think things are going to be a lot smoother of an operation here. But let's make no mistake. I mean, player fill in the blank is not getting traded, cut or promoted or, or whatever without Ron's seal of approval one way or the other.
0: So, so I was trying to think, like I said, like, what does it mean to have, you know, this extra power? Now, again, just because you have power, it doesn't mean you need to use it. This is actually an important element of life. Mm-hmm. to understand that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should impulse control is a good thing and having a good just fundamental understanding of the circumstance which has been part of the problem with the dan snyder journey and it's not just him other owners coaches whatever have a misunderstanding of like what needs to happen they let panic kick in or they just have their own bad instincts so you know i'm not saying we're gonna you know this i am not getting to the point of saying rivera is going to trade 12 12 picks to green bay for aaron Rodgers if that was even available. But I do think if he wanted to, there's I don't know if there's much of an obstacle at this point for that to uh, for that to occur. Not not the Dan, I mean, Dan Snyder being uh, away from operations again. It's apparently, as best we can tell, a self-imposed situation, and he's still the owner of the team, and so his his wife is now the co-CEO. So somebody would be aware. Oh wait, we're trading for Aaron Rodgers. What are we doing? Like, <laughs> but 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 I just don't think that right now, based on on how that side of the things are going, that Rivera would get any pushback. But on the more tangible level that i'm not remotely suggesting they're going to aaron rogers is going to even get traded a little come here but like for example uh brandon sheriff right i mean we're now D- july 15th is the deadline for the franchise tag if brandon Scherf has not signed a long-term deal bef- between now and then then he will play the final he will play this year under the um franchise tag for a second straight year and I was about to say this will be his final year with the team and I think it probably would be um he's not he's he his side's not going to take at that point less than 18 million annual average salary from Washington barring the unforeseen and the team logically is not going to give him that so he would likely go sign a multi-year deal in free agency somewhere else if he hasn't already come to terms but having this extra power if Rivera was inclined he did give him the franchise tag if he was inclined to say screw it uh uh i'm blanking here what's the name of the guard that kansas city signed joe thune um,
1: uh yeah joe thune from new england Right. so he i, I don't
0: uh, i don't have the numbers in front of me and like i said my brain is still in vacation mode but like he was
1: he was like somewhere around 17 million a year i think yeah um it may not be a, a 17 million average but in terms of guaranteed money and all that uh, it was it was a hefty contract. I'd have to look at the average. I I, I believe Brandon's still average-wise, because of the franchise tag, you know, still is the number one paid guard in terms of average annual salary, but Thuny is right there uh, with him. And 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 here, but here's the thing: Thune, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Thuny's like a year younger, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and also much, much, much more dependable. You know, I mean that this is this is the ultimate rub with Brandon Sheriff. And they say all the right things, Ben, but I mean, like, I, I don't know about what sense you have and you're, you know, you get like, I don't, I don't know who, who, if you've talked to anybody that has given you a wink, wink, nod, nod, but I, I mean, th- there's a reason why they haven't blown out the budget for Brandon Sheriff, right? I mean, like I'm, they think he's very good. They're not wrong, but they don't I, I don't get the sense that they think he's elite. And whether it's because he's been not durable or, or, or just because maybe he's very good, but not elite. Um, they're not going to break the bank for him. And they've had plenty of opportunities. And it's clear that they haven't been willing to do that. So um, maybe it's a matter of semantics. But I, I, I think this – I'd be surprised if this ends in a multi-year contract in the next, you know, eight days, nine days, whatever it is. I'd be very surprised. Um, I, I think it would be a good thing if it does for stability, but I don't think it's – I don't think it's likely to happen, and I don't think it should happen at the player's uh, – at, at the player's price point. I, I think it should be – if it's going to happen at a very reasonable cost for the team, and that's just my perspective.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I I've even before they gave him the tag, my take was if they give him the tag, this will be Brandon Sheriff's last year. There won't be a long-term deal because his side's shown no indication of wanting to. Or I shouldn't say wanting to, but there, you know, it's been we've it's been through two years of this, and there's no there's no sense that anything is is, is happening. But but I guess my point is that like if Ron Rivera. Wanted to get that done. He now is in the position, I think, to kind of do that. I understand the brand making eighteen million. Let's just say, for argument's sake, like they stay take the franchise tag money and just use that as the ba- as the salary. Like if Rivera said to Sheriff's side, three years for you know eighteen million, you know we'll give you most of that and guaranteed. Like assuming that his side would be willing, I'm just saying I think now. Th- this power that we're discussing i'm not saying dan snyder would have been interfering previously it would have been objecting but just this is the type of thing that i think rivero could just do if he wanted to without really any 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 obstacles um similar to something with jonathan allen right i mean if jonathan allen to me seems more likely to get a long-term deal um obviously he's younger um you know from a, i think brandon sheriff obviously from a a culture standpoint absolutely works, but so does John Allen, who's a local guy. He's part of that defensive line that we've all obviously talked about a bunch. But as I brought up to Rivera the other day when I spoke to him here, that, you know, how do you realistically extend all four of the first round picks? I don't think you can. I told him that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't really exactly disagree, but he said it was a, or didn't he didn't really, he didn't, well, he gave me a neutral answer, but he kind of said, look, it's going to be a challenge and we'll yeah. see. But this is another type of thing where if he just says, screw it, whatever's going to happen, I want this done, we're going to give John Allen. Now, look, he technically, Rob Rogers, you mentioned him before, Rob Rogers is somebody there, clearly Ron listens to him, and Rob Rogers might say, hey, Ron, we can't realistically afford to do any of these things, we can't get Brandon Scherf that money, we can't do this. So I'm not saying Rivera is going to go Colonel Kurtz here. For those of you who know Apocalypse Now, and just sort of go off the reservation with whatever he wants. But I'm saying, but these are the types of things he could say, screw it. There's no obstacles in my way. I want this done. We're getting it done.
1: Yeah, absolutely. He can do that. But I think that the key point that, you know, the key point that I look at is number one, Ron's never managed a salary cap before he's never done contract negotiation. He's never managed a salary cap. Uh, and he didn't really do that last year. I mean, certainly he had more input, more control, more fingerprints on it. But my understanding is Rob Rogers really helped Ron more, much more than say Ron helped Rob Rogers. That's number one. Number two, um, you know, I I would say this, one of the things that struck me and I'm not sure how, how it it, it played with you. I think when, when either Ron said it, when they hired Marty Herney or Marty said it after they hired him, you know, that one of the things that, you know, kind of went wrong in his second tenure in Carolina, meaning uh, Marty's was, you know, they, they may have been too loyal. They may have been too aggressive in signing guys to earned contracts. And, you know, when, when you hear something like that, that tells me what it tells me is we're not going to break the bank really for anybody, either you're going to play nice or with us, or you're not going to be here. And, 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 you know, maybe I'm reading that wrong, but, but what I mean by that is, you know, we have a team to look out for. We have a team and that team is greater than the individual break the bank methodology. And, and I think, I think that's probably rubbed them the wrong way when it comes to Brandon Sheriff. And I think of any of these defensive linemen and specifically, I would say Duron Payne, more than Jonathan Allen, Chase Young, or Montez Sweat, um, if I had to pick one aside, if either one of them wants to break the bank, there's going to be a lot of, you know, uh, I guess friction, if you will, in terms of getting a long-term deal done. That's just the way I see it. I could be wrong on that, Ben, uh, but but to your point, and 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 I remember what Ron told you last week or two weeks ago or whatever it was, you know, like look, it's got to be fair to both sides. This is not a one-way street where we're going to pay you not only for past production but also on top of that a future production uh, projection, and on top of that, leave ourselves bare, stripped and naked so that we can't sign either Chase Young or Montez Sweat or. Uh, we can't improve the safety position, or we can't improve left tackle because we've got so much money invested in right guard, or we can't re-sign Terry McLaurin or Antonio Gibson, or can't go out and get a veteran-proven quarterback other than Ryan Fitzpatrick.
0: Yeah, no, for 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 sure. And like you know, to that point, like I said, I think Ron's been you know pretty responsible so far. I mean, I thought they you know with free agency this year, yeah, they did spend money on guys like William Jackson and Curtis Samuel, but I didn't think they were. Went overboard in any case. Getting Fitzpatrick on the one-year deal, um, you know, was, was was pretty reasonable last year as well. Obviously, we talked a bunch about how they, they did great with the bargain signings last year with Logan Thomas and J.D. McKissick and so on. So I think they've done a pretty good job. But it just is interesting to see if if, we're, if Rivera gets a hair up his, you know, what to do something. There isn't there, there he can kind of do what he wants, which isn't to say he couldn't to agree before. But I think even more now because of what happened. Um, I know I need to get you out of here, but um, I, I asked Rivera the other day um what's something he's looking forward to in training camp who's a player he's looking forward to and he led into talking about quarterbacks which led to basically the gist of my conversation with him I don't necessarily need to talk about the quarterbacks but I am just curious as a guy who you you are a, a football guy through and through so what's like when we get back out that down to, to Richmond for camp or or just in, in general when it gets back to Ashburn give me a player or a situation, whatever maybe it's a little more off the radar than we've all been discussing, but what's a situation that you're kind of just excited to see or curious about the most uh, when we get uh, back out there again?
1: Yeah, I, I think for me, I'm I'm looking to see how aggressive Jack Del Rio is with this defense in year two. And I think they're going to be a lot more aggressive. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more man press, uh, you know, especially outside. I wonder if Benjamin St. Just is the real deal if eventually that kicks Kendall Fuller into the slot and basically him and Jimmy Moreland battle for snaps and coverage and, you know, what that means for others, uh, which we can, I'm sure, debate at another time. But uh, you know, do they blitz more from the safety spot? Do they blitz more from the slot? Do they blitz more from the outside corner position? Do they cross the inside linebackers? Well, not the inside linebackers, but, uh, you know, do, do, do they, is Jamin Davis the Mike linebacker? And if he is, as opposed to John Bostick, which is what we saw during OTAs, you know, again, do they pressure more from that position in creative looks because, they now are a year into the system. A lot of the technique issues that they struggled with are kind of solved. And on top of that, they have better talent and they want to dictate more tempo to the opposition than they were able to last year. So that's what I'm, you know, kind of most focused on from a big picture standpoint. If we're talking about, you know, an individual, Ben, I, you know, I mean, I, I would say outside of Benjamin St. Juiced. Um, Who I'm really, really, really intrigued by and was the guy I wanted on night two of the draft. Uh, I I would say the guy that, you know, I guess ultimately I'm most interested in seeing, I mean, outside of Ryan Fitzpatrick, of course, because that's where it it starts and ends is, you know, I I would say, all right, is, is Curtis Samuel really, really, really going to be that guy that makes this offense dynamic? Uh, Or is it the combination of Samuel and De'Ami Brown? I don't know, but it's got to be one of those two guys. And ideally, because you spent a lot of money on Curtis Samuel, it should come from him. So, I mean, if we're looking for an individual, I want to see that because he was banged up during OTAs. If we're looking from a schematic overall standpoint, I want to see the defense be much more aggressive.
0: Uh, this is why we like having Chris Russell on because he gives us the, uh, he, he can't help himself. He gives us the X's and O's schematic thinking because his brain goes there. My mm-hmm. brain is focused on what I'm about to eat for dinner, but Chris's is focused or lunch, but his is focused on uh, what, what what Jack Del Rio is going to do, which is where it should be. Uh, go listen to Chris on the team night, 83 to seven Monday to Friday with Pete Madhurst. Of course, go read him for over at uh, SI.com. Go follow him on Twitter at WrestleMania 621. And as I always say, if you're going to go follow him on Twitter, be nice.
1: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Please listen. Also, if I could throw in a cheap plug for me, you should listen to the standing room only podcast, but also the Locked On Washington football team podcast, uh, because, you know, like we try to do what you try and do very well, but you you're a big hitter. You get Ron Rivera and I get me. And my
0: stop yourself uh chris i appreciate it man uh uh we'll, we'll we'll talk soon thank you very much as always
1: thanks ben appreciate you all right
0: so switching away from the washington football team talk to dive into the nba finals the wizards and most importantly as far as i'm concerned top chef because you know, look uh competition whether we're talking sports or uh making food it's, it's very it's a very important a very important show in my life uh in general and there's very few people on the planet who you could say are authority figures when it comes to the NBA and top Chef, but one of them is here with us. He is obviously part of the uh, metal arc media uh, venture that Dan Levitard started on the NBA side. And he's the co-host of the Pack Your Knives podcast with Kevin Arnovitz. He is Tom Habistro. That, uh, that is quite the, uh, quite the resume you, you, you have there. It's not, again, really how many people on the planet can be an authority figure on the NBA and top
2: Chef? Well, the biggest authorities on Top Chef appear to be me and Kevin, and we also cover the NBA. The whole point of us doing the whole podcast was, uh, hey, we kind of are as into Top Chef as we are our day jobs at the NBA. Like, What if we just decided to do a podcast, basically taking our phone conversations that Kevin and I would share watching this show, this food competition show that we both loved watching over the years, and just record ourselves and put it out there and see if, we, if anyone would listen. And it's been such a joy to watch the show and also see the community of Top Chef fans like yourself. Just, it does seem like there's a lot of overlap. I mean, the competition, the stakes, the judges panel, all of it feels like a sport. And during the pandemic last year, when everything shut down... I think we got a lot more listeners to the show because it was the only sport happening for a period of time. And so um, we love doing pack your knives and we love top chef. And so it's, it really does feel like it it is a sport. So it's a natural show to do um, alongside our NBA coverage.
0: I always think that like, cause I like survivor. I like big brother. Uh, well, I, I I can't believe I'm admitting I like Big brother in, in, in public but uh like I like the the ones where there's like a game like there's reality shows like you know Jersey Shore that's like a different thing but the competition shows like Top Chef uh yeah you get to know the people and there's some drama personal drama but there's like an actual game to it where the, like you said those of us who like sports it sort of is a natural thing. Um, all right we're gonna get into that but I, I want to start with the uh, with sort of the basketball stuff. With, with, with you now the nba finals are going on we're not really going to talk about the Suns and the bucks per se because look this is a washington-based podcast and we're talking a couple hours ahead of game two so who knows what the world will look like before then but i i wanted to bring up the finals in in this way as a broader topic i'm curious what what, what you think of this of uh, the nba history i would say there's like a, a a line of demarcation in like 1980 when bird and magic entered the league and that sort of marks the modern era i guess I would argue that this finals matchup with the Suns and the Bucks there are some very good players and who knows what happens in the future maybe one of these teams wins this title and rips off 3 and 4 years like the Warriors you know kind of like the Warriors did or who knows what but you know as it stands this final does not have a player that either is or projects to be like an all-time time-time player Chris Paul's great and Giannis is a two-time MVP but they're not pro- I, I wouldn't say they're projecting to be Jordan, Magic, Bird, Duncan, Kobe, LeBron, or that. From the team perspective, th- we're not sitting here going, boy, I wonder how the Suns would match up against any of the Jordan Bulls or the 2016 Warriors. Somebody's going to win a title. That's history, but it's different to me than it's not a his. We're not looking at something that's historic. And it seems to me this is the first finals matchup, again, since Bird and Magic entered the league, that doesn't have either of those Elements And there's a reason why I'm bringing this up, but I want to get your thoughts, I guess, on that before I get to the next part.
2: So the, the wizards, like, I guess you could say that, that when you look at the bucks and the Suns, Hey, I think the wizards could potentially, you might look at the situation and say, Hey, the wizards could be the next Suns or the next bucks next year. I think the honest, isn't LeBron. Chris Paul isn't magic, but they're still really good. They're still superstars. And I'm, I'm admittedly a Chris Paul apologist sometimes. Like I think if a lot of those injuries doesn't happen with the, with the Clippers or with the injury in game five against the Warriors in 2018, where Chris Paul tears his hamstring, maybe we're thinking Chris Paul is in that tier. If, if those injuries do not happen or Donald Sterling doesn't happen or what have you. So Putting that aside, I mean, I think Giannis Antetokounmpo and Chris Paul are top 25 players. I mean, Giannis being a two-time MVP at age, whatever he is right now, he's on that trajectory of being top 25 all time. If there's a top 25 greats in NBA history, I think Chris Paul and he are on there. Um, so that leaves the rest of the NBA to say, all right, well, maybe if all I need is a one superstar and a one borderline all-star, maybe I can make a run at this thing. Problem is everyone is going to think that. So you're not going to be the only team to look at this finals and say, Hey, we got a shot at this thing. Now, everybody, I guess this is the argument for parody is everyone from Miami to Indiana to uh, Memphis to new Orleans with Zion. If you, as long as you have one player that could be considered a superstar or close to it, you could talk yourselves into being a title team, but because there are so many more teams jockeying for that position, I find that it actually flattens the odds because rather than four teams who have a chance now it's like 12 teams and you're fighting against 12 other teams That actually, in some ways, makes it even harder for you to get to that spot.
0: And and that sort of leads into where I was going. Like I and like to be clear, like I was, uh, you know, look, it looks like it could be an entertaining finals. And I'm not it's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of fine with the fact that at least for one year we get a final that doesn't have lebron steph curry you know obviously i think i think i saw a stat that like since 2008 every finals had either steph curry lebron or kobe bryant in it so this is obviously not 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 that and and we don't know what's going to happen going forward maybe we get back the next year and it is just the same old it's lebron against kevin durant if we get lakers Nets, yeah. and it'll feel yeah. like it's been the last you know 30 years but that was sort of my wonder is is it possible because look lebron is On the back nine of his career somewhere we don't know if the warriors are ever going to get back there the nets thing had felt volatile from the start both from the personalities and then from the health of some of the players so who knows what happens there the sixers you know they were the one seed this year but well the ben simmons thing is a mystery and utah is the one seed this year which is unusual but who knows what happens there it feels like maybe or is it possible after all these years where we go into every nba season where we kind of say okay Three and four teams, we kind of know who they are. These are the teams that are going to contend. And almost always, that kind of is how it plays out. And if there's a, a random team that gets in, it's like Toronto, where you had Kawhi Leonard, a, a guy who would already won a finals MVP, taking that team to, to the end. And he had some, I don't i, I want to say it some luck, but some you know injury things happened
2: along the way, as happens every Yeah, day. I mean, that, Ben, what you're getting at is like, this is not n- new, because it happened in 2019, where... The super team broke up because of injury, and a team, Toronto, that had been winning 60 games in years prior, but you could never get over the hump, made the run. And I think it points to teams have to be requiring health because if you look at the Suns, they are a very healthy team all season long, and you need to have injury luck on your side. Um, who could have thought that Chris Paul would be considered like the the golden standard of being a healthy team, like the leader of that team. <laughs> right. So there's, got, there's a lot of that goes into what the Suns are doing, what the Bucs are doing, but absolutely, I think it's fair to question whether the era of super teams is breaking up a bit, just as we thought that they were ramping up. Maybe it's this um, era of have a deep team that is run primarily by a superstar in Giannis or Chris Paul.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing, right? I mean, you have like the Dallas Mavericks are having a moment right now in terms of this offseason, season, but they still have Luka Doncic, who's, you know, arguably the best player, you know, some would say in, in the whole league and like Denver had the MVP and Nikola Jokic and the Sixers. Yes. Things fell apart for them and we don't know what's going to go on with Ben Simmons, but you still have Joel Embiid and, you know, either Simmons could turn it around or they trade him for a bunch of stuff that puts him to another level. And then that's not even counting the Lakers, the Nets, Um, You know, again, Utah was the one seed, so on and so on. The the, the Atlanta Hawks made the Eastern Conference final. So it does feel like on the one hand, maybe I guess that's ultimately my question. Do you think we're at a point going forward that instead of the three, instead of the standard NBA, which is the one sport that is, you kind of know each year who the contenders are versus say the other three main leagues that every year, it's a little more vague for sure. And you got a little fluky winners or, you know, like you said, do you think it's going to ultimately go back to president? This is what the NBA is. You have the best player, the one of the best three or four players, you're going to be a contender and ultimately that how it shakes out most years.
2: Yeah. I think that, I think this year proved that, um, you know, there, there is something to the fact that superstars are getting hurt more than ever. And, you know, 10 different all-stars Ben, 10 different all-stars have missed games this postseason due to injury the highest of all time, the previous high was six. So we're now 40% higher, roughly speaking, higher than the highest previous mark. So what does that mean? It means next year, all these stars are coming in rehabbing this summer and may not be in prime shape. Whereas in years prior, they might be having their full off season, able to just get in some real rehab work, at the beginning, but then work on their skills and get into training camp, super uh, healthy. So now imagine a NASCAR race where all of the fastest cars are coming in with issues all over under the hood. You know, something's <laughs> going to break down. Like the biggest predictor of injury in the NBA is prior injury. So going into next season, whether it's James Harden, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Kyrie Irving, um, Uh, Jamal Murray, uh, Luka Doncic had some injuries at the end, Damian Lillard. Like when you look at all the all-stars that got hurt this year, that means that the other teams that don't have everything all in on one superstar might have more cracks at it simply because they're deeper. So I think if you're looking at the NBA now, you have to understand that injuries are more prevalent than ever at the top. And so that means that there's just it's there's risk in building a super team because if LeBron gets hurt or if Anthony Davis gets hurt, everything falls apart. Whereas if you have something like the 20 2004 Detroit Pistons where you're built with a staff of really good players and I think you can make the same you know comparison to the Suns where they just have like six or seven really smart good players that are healthy, young and old Jay Crowder and Chris Paul with DeAndre Ayton and Devin Booker that is, a, that is a really tough team to beat. And so the trouble is everyone's doing that. Everyone's looking at, okay, if all I need is one superstar, I can make a run at this thing. And you can see how all these teams, Denver, New Orleans, uh, you said Luca there, they all think they have a shot. So I think it does flatten it. Um, and I do think that the injuries are going to perpetuate because of the fact that, all these stars are coming into next season, having to rehab and fix all these issues. I don't think they're going to be fresh come next season.
0: Right. I mean, you know, I didn't mention, obviously, the pandemic is part of all this. You know, these, these last two years have been incredibly affected by it, particularly last year with the bubble, but this year too, the season started pretty quick turnaround that had to affect injuries. You had obviously teams like the wizards were, were had their seasons, uh, go off the rails because of the pandemic and that affected all kinds of, uh, of of things. And I'm sure that's part of, you know, when we do sort of the final autopsy of all the injuries this year, I'm sure that will be factored, uh, factored into this. Uh, sp- speaking of the wizards, let me turn them into a conversation about NBA contenders, which is not something I ever do because I'm, I live in the real world. And like I said, at a building block level, when you have two guys in Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook, two all-star level players, It seems like a reasonable place to start if we're talking about a potential era going forward here of of, of the league flattening out in terms of contenders, right? Uh, In any given game, the Wizards could have the best or, you know, two of the three best players in a given matchup, right, Uh, because of those guys. But the worst place to be, we always say in the NBA is being in the middle meaning you're not really a contender but you're also not bad enough to be in the position to get like a top five lottery pick and that's where the wizards kind of are but even within that group it feels like they're in another subset because other than beale and westbrook they don't really have like a veteran laden team that seems like you know they, they, they they're like they have enough but like to, to be interesting but they don't really It's most of the team is younger guys that you would probably would say in some circumstances look trade bradley beale begin your rebuild with Rui Hachimura, Danny Avdia, Daniel Gafford. You've got the 15th pick, whatever you get from Beal. But then you have the Westbrook thing where you can't trade him because of his contract and he's not the easiest guy to fit into a team. So it's hard to look at the Wizards and to know exactly where to go. We've talked about that a bunch here. And I'm just sort of curious from your view in terms of both the Wizards, but also sort of where we are with this era, like we're saying of potentially things flattening out. What do you, what do, you do if I give you the GM reins? What do you do with this team?
2: Yeah, I think you have a real serious conversation with Bradley Beal about a realistic roadmap to being a contender. And I think Damian Lillard's having the same conversation with Portland is like, what are we doing here? I think uh, Tommy Shepard and Ted Leonsis and the front office need to have a real conversation with Bradley because he's off at Team USA right now. And he is absolutely having conversations I'm guessing um, with other superstars being like, Hey, where can we do this? He might be campaigning for that place to be DC, or he might be listening to Draymond or listening to whoever it is being like, Hey, why don't we do this out here? And so look, they're not naive. The wizards front office and whoever they hire as a coach, they're not naive. They know that Bradley Beal is a wanted superstar and his contract is up next year And so you can see a situation in which you're going to get offers for Bradley Beal that are going to be very enticing, especially when you watched the Phoenix suns make one move essentially with Chris Paul. And you could argue, talk to yourself and Jay Crowder being an additional move there. And now you're on the verge of winning a title. Who can that be? A lot of teams are probably looking at Bradley Beal as that guy, or they're looking at Damian Lillard as that guy, or they're looking at Ben Simmons as that guy. So far, we haven't heard that Bradley Beal has, has made a trade demand. But I do think that you have to be realistic about where the where the Wizards are. They went uh, 34 and 38 last season, which is almost the same exact, I want to say, as what the Phoenix Suns were a year ago before they ran, ran the, ta- the table and got to the finals. So you could say, I'm the, we could be the next Suns. But every team is saying that. right? And so I think you have to have a real conversation with Bradley Beal about their future. Russell Westbrook can be a free agent next summer too, although I think he's more likely to pick up that, that option. Um, and I say you rebuild. It's interesting to me, the names that they are interviewing for the Washington Wizards coaching job, because to me, that is a signal that they are going in the rebuild mode rather than building a championship contender. They're not going for the blue chip names. They're not going for uh, Mike D'Antoni, which I think would be a great fit for Bradley Beal is having Mike D'Antoni as the head coach and Russell Westbrook when they have a history together at, at Houston, but they're not. They're going for the assistants or internally looking for the next up-and-coming coach. I mean, maybe that works and they build a contender with a with a rookie head coach. It worked with Nick Nurse, but Nick Nurse was someone who was with the Toronto Raptors organization And that the reason why it was such a cool story, Ben, with Nick Nurse, was because it never happens. It almost never happens that an internal assistant promoted to a head coaching job runs the table and wins a championship. And so, to me, I think reading the tea leaves and what, from what I gather, you know, talking to other executives, I think the Washington Wizards, instead of saying we could be the next Phoenix Suns, I think they're looking at this and saying we can be the next Oklahoma City Thunder and try to rebuild and build from scratch. Because remember, Tommy Shepard was with um, Er Ernie Grunfeld for this long long period of time. But this has still got Bradley Beal on the team. This still has that old regime. Um, This isn't Tommy Shepard's team quite yet, it's not. And so let's see what happens here this summer. But I I do think they have to look at a real uh, honest look about Bradley Beal's future. And try to get as many assets as I can now that teams are going to be trying to find their next Chris Paul.
0: Right. Now that's interesting that you've that you've heard into, or that you're sensing talking to people that, that that they may be headed in that path because the thing with Ted Leontis historically has been, I've said this a hundred times. He is all about making that playoff money and wants to stay in that race he's also famously said we will never quote we will never tank so the idea of trading Bradley Beal would go against both of those things and yet logically I kind of it's hard to argue that they shouldn't go that route because they're not a, a, a real contender even in this flat even if things really do flatten out and 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 so on. Um, I, I want to ask you in sort of before we get to Top Chef because that's what we both want to talk about. <laughs> uh, the you mentioned the assistant. Um, some of the people they've been looking at. Um, a lot of assistant coaches: Wes Untell Jr., uh, Darvin Ham, b- b- bunch of names. I think I think the public. I think publicly we're up to about ten or twelve candidates. I think privately there's surely more than that. They've already talked to. Um, this is what the Wizards do. They, <laughs> they, they they interview everybody. For all kinds of things, and then they make a, a decision. Um, fans will say, "Oh, what?" In, in any of these situations, "Oh, that's the guy." I want, I want that assistant coach, or like I just the, the football team just in, uh, added a general manager this year, and people are saying, "Oh, I want that director of player personnel." And I'm like, "How on earth could you possibly know whether that person is any good? How can you know whether an assistant coach you you want the Spurs assistant? Great." Greg Popovich is not coming. You get that, right? Same thing with a Belichick on the NFL side or just any human being who hasn't had this job previously. How can any of us on the outside know what they will do that you can't really quantify it. I can say, well, if they hire Steve Clifford, I have a sense of what he will do because he's been head coach. And I'm curious as a guy who does what you do, you look, you you look at a lot of analytics and numbers. You talk to people around the league. Is there any real way for those of us on the outside to actually gauge whether any assistant, whether again, we're talking about a coach in this case, or, or if it's the GM is actually any good beyond just, well, I hear he's good. I hear this person's smart. Is there any way to actually gauge this?
2: No, they're like statistically, analytically, it's one of the biggest holy grails in the sport is how do you quantify coaches? How do you measure a good coach? Because if we did know the answer to that, Tom Thibodeau is not the head coach of the Knicks. And he's certainly not the coach of the year for the Knicks. Like, I don't think many people saw that coming at all with that roster in that city. Tom Thibodeau putting together the four seed. I don't know if they if they projected that they're lying to you. So I think it's really hard not to crack the idea of we could project coaching performance in today's NBA? Because if a team improves, is that because of internal improvement of its players? Is it luck? Or is it like the coach figured out something? And because we don't, we're not in those huddles. We're not in those behind the scenes meetings. We really have no idea. So what you end up having to do is interviewing people who are around that head coach or that assistant head coach and trying to get a feel of, okay, are his strengths or his or her strengths good for what this roster is going to be. Steve Nash is a great example in Brooklyn. He has an amazing ability to manage egos or at least get people in line to a greater goal. He might not be the most steeped in X's and O's and, okay, we got to drop a play right here. What are we going to run? He might not be steeped in you know, the best halftime speech, but he sure as heck showed that he can get Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and James Harden to like playing with each other. And for all of the talk about Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant and their personalities and James Harden, uh, off-court stuff, wasn't a whole lot of that this year. And so when I looked at this season, I was like, man, Steve Nash, I just don't know if that's a great hire. Tom Thibodeau in New York, good luck. And yet those were two of the best coaching hires. So in today's NBA, it's as hard as it is to peg. And um, for for the Wizards, what's difficult about this situation is who is this coach coaching next season, right? You're hiring a head coach for a job that might not have Bradley Beal or Russell Westbrook on it. We don't know what Thomas Bryant's going to be like next year. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that coaching search, where they land, because I think Wes Unseld, there's someone internal makes a lot of sense because not only is this kind of a long-term hire in terms of, We're not getting a retread someone like Steve Clifford. You're bringing in someone who knows Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook without having to have that win now mentality. So you have both the win now of I know these guys. I know how they how they work. They have their trust. But I also in case you need to hit the reset button. I'm here for the long haul, too. And I recognize that I'm not Doc Rivers. I'm not Greg Popovich. I don't need to win now to feel like I need to take this job. I'm okay with rebuilding for the next three, four or five years. So that's what I think is going to be important here is does Wes Unsell or some of the internal candidates have the same qualities that you want to have as a head coach, that they can get the most out of Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook. And are they qualified to lead a player development phase where they're going to be a few years before they really hit their prime?
0: Is there a name that you've uh, either you, uh, somebody, you know, that you like among the names that have been that mentioned as interview candidates or somebody you've heard around the league that, that you find interesting, or would you just even care to make a, a wild prediction as to uh, who gets a job?
2: I think unselled has the inside track here. And um, I've heard great things about him as, as a, as a uh, basketball mind and a motivator. I think for the wizards, again, like what we tend to do in the NBA, and this is true in the NFL is take whatever the reputation was or on the spectrum and just go to the end of the pendulum and go to the opposite ends of the spectrum. If you got a hard ass coach, let's go with a player friendly coach, right? If you have someone who's more of a, um, you know, up-tempo like offensive coach. All right. Now this one, we're going to go with like a defensive minded grind it out lunch pail coach. We see this all the time in the NBA. And so, you take Scott Brooks, who's more known as an offensive minded coach. I'm interested to see whether they're going to go and try to find someone who's, um, who's got more of a reputation for being uh, more of an innovator defensively and trying to, you know, go that route. So I don't know who it's going to be. Um, but I think West Unsell makes a lot of sense for the Wizards. Um,
0: I, I would agree. All right, let's get, let's get to the fun stuff. uh, uh top chef is is a uh you know instead of the top it's a it's a competition show but it's a really well-produced show and this year in particular was fascinating i didn't even realize that they were doing this season they did a season in in portland this year that you know if, if you're listening to this i presume you're still uh you're into top chef or you just like to hear tom's voice which which i get uh but every year they go somewhere and, and go to some city this year they were in Portland, but they actually did it during the height of the pandemic. They did it last year. They, they created their own version essentially of the NBA bubble to pull this off. So it didn't have some of the bells and whistles that previous seasons had, including that they sort of had their own alumni come in to sort of fill in the judging and some of the other parts of the show, but it worked. It worked really well. It was really interesting. Um, I, and I would encourage everybody, if you haven't listened, if you haven't watched this season yet, or you're interested, go back, go, go start the season. But after each episode, go listen to Tom and Kevin's podcast. Cause that's what I did all throughout the year. And, and, and it, it really, I mean, like I, I mean, I love podcasts, like on all these things. I like listening to, like I went and listened to a podcast after game one of the finals, because I wanted to get, you know, hear from people who were who interested in this and you guys do a great job before I get into some of my thoughts, I guess, just broadly, why, what, 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 about this season to you worked for, for
2: uh, despite all, all the challenges. It's kind of like what they say about NBA referees is, you know, they did a good job when you didn't notice anything about, you didn't notice the referees. The reason why I think this season was so good is because you didn't realize it was in a pandemic. You didn't, you couldn't, you couldn't really tell from all of the things that they did that, it wasn't hammering in your head. Oh, there is a pandemic going on in the background. Oh, they're in a housing bubble or, Oh, these restaurant tours or these faces, celebrity chefs that they're bringing on the show. They're only there for a week because they're quarantining behind the scenes. Right. That's, I think the biggest Testament I can give to them. Like, it's not like the NBA where you watch a game and there's no one in the stands. You're like, Oh, what's going on here. I, this is disorienting. When you watch top chef this year, what they were able to pull off is that They got the show 100%, in my opinion, what made the show great. And they didn't have to sacrifice much at all. In fact, I think their strategy of bringing in some of the alums and from seasons past, the familiar faces, whether it's Richard Blaze or Melissa King or Gregory Gorday, like these are all people that are part of the family. And so it didn't feel weird seeing them. It didn't scream pandemic. It screamed this is what Top Chef is all Top Chef is all about. So I really love this season because they brought back the alums and I didn't find myself you know saying, "Oh man, this challenge is really good, but man, it really does feel like it's 50% of where it could be because obviously they can't execute it as much they're in a pandemic."
0: Right. I mean like so like I come at this the equivalent of a casual nba fan who is like like it would be like sort of saying a casual nba fan going oh bradley Beal scores 30 points a game i sure i get that versus here's all the reasons why he's doing this he, he improved his dribble drive he, he he's he's much better now getting to the rim and getting to the free line or whatever or he's changed his mentality that's where you and kevin are you guys are foodies for real you guys have all the lingo down you, you have real thoughts um I was just on a trip to Los Angeles and I didn't have, I had almost no agenda other than to walk the beach, but I made a point of going to the restaurant owned by Brooke Williamson, who's one of the b- former uh, top chef winners. She was one of the alumni they brought back. Uh, i I, I admit, got, got a bit of a crush on Brooke Williamson these days. She was, so she was in part because she was on this, on this show a lot. And so I went to her restaurant and I got some fish tacos and I got this, Tomato heir heirloom salad, largely because the waitress told me that Brooke put it on the menu that day. I'm like, all right, well, good enough for me. <laughs> so I'm. I'm it's like you're meeting
2: Brooke. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm eating a dish that she conceived of that day. Great,
0: <laughs> right, right. And and so like, I don't. I, I'm I'm at it on a very basic uh, l- l- level, and you guys, like I said, can really appreciate this on on so many other. Uh, 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 on so many other levels um and and it it, it, it's it just such as um you know that's why it's so interesting to listen to you guys talk talk about this um but the game itself at the end of the day we can't taste the food that's the weirdest part of the whole show that you know when we're watching an nba game we see the ball go in the basket i don't really have to know much beyond that to know what happened but when they tell us as this year that gabe wins over Shoda and Dawn. We're just going off of what they tell us of how the food uh tasted. That, Isn't that weird. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it it's bizarre. So here's the thing. the one thing we do have though is we sort of know what the rules are. We understand the guidelines. Here are the guardrails. You each have each competition, you have to make clam the the base of your meal or you're cooking at a campsite with no um power. Electricity. Or, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah, Or
0: you have to go out and find your own food or you have this much money, you know, you have to do, you have to plate four four courses over a certain amount of time and plate eight, eight, eight people, eight, eight plates to get done. That's all we know. And that's what the weird thing for me this year was, as you guys talked about was Dawn, who's a former Olympic athlete, who um, is clearly an amazing chef. She continually all year long could not plate enough Uh, didn't finish her plating properly across the board and as somebody who tries to like follow the rules when we watch these games it seemed weird to me that this was kept being allowed to happen and she wasn't seemingly penalized because she obviously made it all the way to the finals and i'm wondering from your perspective do you think that either said a her food was so insane good that basically she was probably the best chef and they just could never figure out whatever the deductions were in their head wasn't enough to ever kick her out or b as you guys discuss has the show veered away too far away from the competition aspect of it. And it's just more like friendly. And they're like, yeah, her food's pretty good. And ah, okay, fine. She didn't get something plated, but we're not
2: that focused on the competition aspect as much. It's the same thing that Giannis is not being penalized for taking 13 seconds at the free throw line. Right. It's, I mean, yeah, she might not have gotten that on the plate, but everything about this tastes really good and we don't want to, You know, it seems like we're eliminating her on a technicality rather than hey, Giannis is going. Giannis is amazing, and we don't want to penalize that person when he's putting up thirty and fifteen. It seems like it's a little bit of the star treatment here. Is like she's producing such good food, so we have to keep her around based on you know, in years past, maybe she's eliminated pretty early on for not having that element on the plate. Um, One hand, I feel like we shouldn't come down and hammer her for missing an element on the plate when the rest of the food is amazing. And Tom Colicchio had a really good, uh, so he's the, one of the judges on the show had a really good point, which is in this pandemic year, those mistakes showed up more on TV because in years past, when people did not put everything on the plate, it just, it was in a imme- like there are only three dishes that they'd had to produce in years past now they have to produce eight dishes and so the element missing an element on a dish happens a lot more now and so should we be applying the same apples to apples disqualification when it is a different ball game now instead of three dishes now we're asking them to prepare eight and so if they miss one or two on that eight so what i um I traded Dawn. So one of the things that I like this about pack your knives is we do draft it. We draft contestants after the first episode of top chef. And so we bring in another sports element of like, Kevin has his team and I have my team. I drafted Dawn third overall. And I traded her after like two weeks because of that element of she, or that, 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 glitch in her system is that she sometimes forgot uh, elements on her dish and she couldn't get on there. I thought that was a fatal mistake that banking on that person to, uh, to figure it out on the fly. I don't know. So I traded Dawn to Kevin and it did not work out. Dawn went all the way to the finale. So um, it's a long winded way to say that I, on a personal grudge, I was upset that she didn't get eliminated sooner because it would have meant I would have won the fantasy league. But um, I get why this year under that Tom Calicchio explanation that they were a little softer on those rules than they were in years past.
0: Fair enough. If it's sort of like you said, because look, and that's the thing, right? We have to sort of put ourselves in the mindset of where they were at that time. Not when the show was airing, it was in the height of the pandemic in 2020 and all of us were, you know, off a bit and these people are being separated from their family they're in this competition it's stressful so I can imagine that they were a bit more frantic than normal and also like in the in the finale usually from the penultimate round to the finale they actually take like a several week break on the show production and then they travel to some far-flung part of the world Italy wherever and do it there here they had to go they one day they do the, the penultimate dish and then like I think it was like the next day do the next one so they didn't even get the break that other that the usual um con- contestants get so from that one in particular that, that that was tough although don't even get me started that they didn't eliminate somebody in the in the uh from from three to two that they they, they they came they came up with some convoluted tie and then uh, yeah. three in the finale that was uh that that, that was kind of a, of a mess um but based on all that i mean were you cool with Gabe winning, it was, for those who don't know, there was controversy, Has nothing to do with the show, but this contestant, Gabe, where is it, Dallas? He, he's from he, Dallas?
2: Uh, so Gabe had a restaurant in Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas.
0: Anyway, in, in his real life, he was uh, fired from uh, that restaurant because of uh, work issues, we'll just say, that, which has nothing to do with the show, but the news became more prominent after the show had already they had already filmed the show and all that so you can, add, you can factor that in or not but like what were you kind of were you ultimately cool with him winning based on again we don't taste the food but based on everything you kind of saw yeah i mean when you
2: look at the uh on court stuff i did use an <laughs> mba euphemism uh he was the top scorer in our system we have a point system that rewards contestants for five points if they get in the top three ten points if you have the winning dish uh three points if you win quick fire one point if you finish in the top three in the quick fire you get eliminated you get minus five points And that point system also you get two points if you're in the middle not quite in the top three or in the bottom three but if you survive um you get two points in the middle So under that rubric, he had the most points of anyone this season. And so he got a 25 point boost by winning the whole top chef. So, you know, maybe that factors into it, but he was definitely a worthy top chef. Uh, This season, he was making moles and sauces like it was nobody's business. And if you, uh, if you're a human being, I I can't find a human being on this planet that doesn't like a good sauce, uh, whether it's a pasta sauce or whether it's something you put on your, uh, on salads or whatever it is. Like sauces are amazing. You right. could throw salsa in there, right? Mole's he made a, a, a magical mole every week on the show. And so we, um we felt that both Kevin and I, and you probably agree that Shoda was probably the heavy favorite going into the finale. But when you look at the overall season, Gabe was just as worthy in terms of, uh, He had as many wins as, as Shota overall throughout the season. I think four wins each. Um, He was late to the quick fire game. He won his first quick fire in the last few seasons, but uh, on the on-court stuff, Gabe was absolutely a worthy winner. Um, Shota was definitely upset in that. I think he should have, based on his performance heading into that, he probably should have won. But Gabe was a worthy winner. And the off-court stuff, I'll just tell you, Kevin and I, we recorded that episode, the recap finale recap, without any sort of Bravo statement, Top Chef statement. Um, uh, Gabe had not put out a statement until like a few hours after we recorded, Gabe mentioned or, or told a local paper in Austin, like the specifics of the allegations against him. We only knew that, he was fired from his job at Commodore, his, his, his Austin restaurant uh, for misconduct. The details of that misconduct, we had, we had no idea. Um, so as journalists, we were not privy to that information. And so speculating on why someone was being fired from their job, we weren't willing to go there unless we got the facts and the information. So I, look, um, it's ugly. It's a messy situation there with Gabe. Um, and I do think it's interesting worthy of note that when Bravo did their like watch what happens live or, um, with Andy Cohen, the post-game show, the official Bravo post-game top chef post-game show, Gabe did not appear on that. And in years past, the winner does appear on that show. Um, so who, we don't know what's going to come of that. Um, on court, Gabe definitely showed out this year, an amazing top chef contestant. Um, and you saw how emotional Maria was at the end of that at, at the end of that series, the end of that season. Um, she was so happy to see that 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 he won, um, and it's, he's the first Mexican American uh, top chef ever. So I think that's that's you know something to incorporate into the whole calculus of this uh, you know rehashing what what happened this year in Top Chef is man, there are a lot of hoops that they jumped through top chef to get this season off. And the finale definitely raised a lot more questions than answers.
0: Yeah, for, for sure. Um, one of the things I love that you guys always incorporate NBA talk into your analysis of the show. And sometimes you maybe make some player <laughs> comparisons. Um, I, I'm curious if there's like, if you yeah. have a, if there's a specific uh, a chef to NBA player in, uh, comparison, you're having your head, the one that I had this year, uh, there was a contestant Avishar who was a guy that was like, made these very, uh, the Buckeyes. He, he's the Ohio guy. Yeah, yeah. he would. He, he was like a science guy. He really concocted some meals that were some of them were a huge hit, but some of them were huge misses. And I, at some point during the year, as a guy who was a Georgetown fan at, at points in my life, he, to me, he was the Jeff Green of this season, where sometimes he's like the best player in the league. And other times you're like, why is he here? Uh, yeah, so that was, my, that was my player comp. Did you have any
2: uh, any uh, player uh, comps for the season? Oh man, maybe maybe Shoda was twenty eleven LeBron, where it was just like, oh, he's obviously better than everyone at this, and then just crumbled in the finals. Um, that was, I think Kevin and I made reference to Shoda. I think it might have, yeah, that Shoda's performance was very twenty eleven LeBron. Was what? What? Who is this person? Like. Do what got you here, do the jet, like high level Japanese cuisine. And then in the third course of his finale, he's doing like Japanese comfort food, which is not what he what he's amazing at. And right. so it was like LeBron James, come on. You're, you're LeBron, be LeBron, just be LeBron. Like why we have to overthink this. You're LeBron, do LeBron things. Um, Don, um, Don feels like, ooh, Don, someone who keeps making the same mistake Maybe it's like Steph Curry where he's throwing the ball out of bounds or making these like ridiculous passes there in crunch time where it's like, no, just shoot the ball. Well, could it, you don't could have it, to be – yeah. Could we go with Russell
0: Westbrook who for 45 minutes of every game is like <laughs> arguably the best player on the court in the last three minutes? You know that bad three-point shot and turnover is coming?
2: That's a good one. That's a good one. There's a, there's a pretty big gap between Steph Curry and, and Russell Westbrook. So I think <laughs> she'll prefer – Maybe she prefers. Well, maybe as a, as a end to end sprinter, like a, an Olympian track and field star. Maybe she prefers Russell Westbrook because he's just the most ridiculous athlete at that size. Um, but yeah, it, it. I love I love the tortured NBA analogies with Top Chef. Um, and then Gabe, who does like one thing amazingly well, and you get tired of it after a while. Maybe, but it's still really good. It's probably James Harden. James Harden, like step back, get free throws. Like we get it. Like you're good at sauces and moles, but can you do something else? Maybe that's James Hart.
0: Awesome. Do we know anything yet about next season? I mean, it's happening, but we we haven't seen uh, mentioned where it is. I assume by now they must know, but I have, has that been announced or have I just not seen that?
2: Has it been announced? We're keeping an eye out for it for another season of top chef Um, or pack your knives. I actually, I'm curious for you. Is there a season that you've recently watched, or that you want to watch, you've heard a lot about. That you would want us to do a rewatch of Top Chef. What season you want? Pack your knives to do a re. We've done that before with Top Chef Las Vegas, uh, season six with Voltaggio Brothers and um, Kevin Gillespie, but uh, and Jen Carroll but is there a season you Ben that you would love us to cover either because you haven't watched it and you'd like to watch it along with us or one that you've watched, but you wish Pack Your Knives was covering it.
0: Yeah. First of all, the Voltagio brothers. Like if you talk all time, great rivalry scenarios, you know, Federer and Nadal, bird magic, the, the, I would take the vault, the Voltagio brothers going head to head in the finals. The, the the one brother who is this incredibly natural uh, cocky talented chef cocky guy and the other one who's this real workman like uh chef they're going head to head you can tell there's a sibling rivalry the mother is there in the finale she's got a comfort one whether that was an, among the best drama you will ever see on any in any sporting event ever uh it, but you guys did that one That was great the i don't know if you did this one i think it was i always get the cities wrong seattle was that the one where uh, with Kristen Kish and Brooke Williamson, was it Seattle or is that am I wrong on that city?
2: Uh, no, that was Seattle. Um, man, man, se- season 10 was uh, Kristen Kish winning Brooke Sheldon. That's a good one, yeah. I mean, I
0: don't remember, you know, I, I remember sort of how it ended, and I'm uh, like, and if you're listening to this, I presume you probably watched Top Chef, so I don't want to spoil it though. But the, 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 how the, the, the winner's path to the end and all that stuff was, was, was crazy. And then the fact that you had, you know, uh, w- w- with, uh, you know, in, in Kristen and Brooke in particular, two of the best ever in the same season, all, all that kind of stuff. I, I don't know. That one was, that, wow, that, that one was, was pretty top good. Top
2: Chef 10. That seems so long ago. Oh, wow. I would have guessed it was like Top Chef 13, 14, but Top Chef 10, it aired. During the LeBron era in Miami, 2012 to 2013, yeah.
0: I I just, uh, I was telling you right before we started, because the season just ended and I was looking for something else to watch and I'm on this Brooke Williamson kick right now. I started watching the the season, her Charleston season that she ended up winning, which was season 14. From a production standpoint and a game standpoint, it feels like it might've been season four compared to now. It doesn't even look like the same. I'm only like one episode in at this point, but like it, it doesn't even look like the same show on hundred fronts and maybe that was because they were filming it not in the, the current kitchen doesn't look like the standard top chef kitchens. So maybe that changes, but that one doesn't even feel like it's the same show. I don't know how that one ranks among the all time shows, but that's the one I'm actually starting to rewatch right now or starting to watch right now.
2: Yeah. It's a, it's a great season. And that's the probably the biggest takeaway from watching season six, Las Vegas is watching the fashion watching how it feels like you're going through a time machine. And it just, it was a, a, a real big hit of nostalgia watching that season of Top Chef. And it's, it's not unlike watching a game from 2002 in the NBA and being like, they wore their shorts that low or like that they, their jerseys. It feels like they're swimming in their jerseys and those haircuts. Like did, did Darko really bleach his hair like that? Like that's, that's a lot of watching, you know, early 2000s NBA, same thing with top chef. So what you're describing is a lot like our rewatch of season six.
0: Well, I was just, before we came on, I was watching some somewhere on Twitter. Somebody was showing for whatever the reason, clips of Chris Mullen as part of the 1984 Olympic team in some game. And the court has no three point line. <laughs> it just looks so weird. He's taking these long shots from like the top of the key. And it's yeah. like, this isn't even like, he's like barely getting guarded at like 18 feet. Cause that's considered to be a poor percentage shot relatively to, you know, at the rim. And it's just like the game doesn't even look remotely the same. So um I get that. Did you have you guys, did you guys do the all-star season? Um The one with the,
2: when Richard Blaze won? We haven't done that. That's what everyone wants us to do is do the rewatch of the all-star season. Yeah.
0: Cause that, like I said, I've been a little more hit or miss with some of my years, but that was obviously- uh a, a really good one um mike isabella who obviously is another guy it's a little bit of a checkered history to say the least but he's been he was based here you know as are a bunch of these chefs um and he was a, a prominent uh voice on that show uh as well yeah is, is that so is that is that your sort of plan to figure out a, a a a run it back uh season while you're waiting for the next one
2: yeah so until the next season airs kevin and i have agreed to do a rewatch. We were going to do a rewatch right before they started um, announcing this most recent season of Portland. And so we already know, I think which season we're going to do, but I'm always curious. Is going back to season one, is that interesting to like just see what the show was like in season one, even before Padma was on the show? Or is that just like watching, you know, 1980s basketball, like, or watching like 1800s baseball, where it's just like, ah, it's just a totally different sport. It's not even the same thing. So we're, we're curious, uh, we'll get further on down the road and just like, we're going to be picking at the scraps of top chef, whether people are going to want to see a rewatch of top chef one, which a season that probably 90% of the audience never saw.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. No, for, for, for sure. It's, 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 uh, it's interesting. Right. And any season without, without Padma, I mean, I don't know uh right that's a tough one um tom i uh, really appreciate it. And anything uh said you, you the, the uh metal arc media you guys have gotten off to a great start it's only gotten going here in the last few weeks it's a ridiculous cast of characters that you guys have is there anything uh everybody should know
2: about what you got what you're doing over there and, and kind of what you guys uh have going on yes yeah, subscribe to Lebetard and friends on youtube we will be live streaming the show there Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays at 10 a.m. or usually around 9 or 10 a.m. Uh, we get the show going. We'll also be on wherever you listen to podcasts, the Dan lebitard Show and the lebitard Show, lebitard and Friends um uh network. So like you can you can just type in Lebatard into Google. And if you haven't listened to the show, it's very much like Howard Stern meets um sports. It's there's a cast of characters that uh that come on the show and we'll do highbrow and lowbrow low as well as anything you'll see in sports. So um, if you haven't listened yet to the Levitard show, uh, check that out. You will be hearing my voice um, stitched into there from where I'm at in Charlotte. But um, Meadowlark Media, the, the overarching like media group, uh, we're going to be doing some really good long-term projects that uh, I'm really excited about and can't wait to tell you more about as they come. But um, that's what we're trying to do. Um, so subscribe to Lebitard and friends on on YouTube um, to watch us live and also to watch past videos. And also uh, the Dan Levitard show, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Yeah, I mean, I used to listen to, to Levitard at the old place and watch highly questionable all that and he was great but then like to see all the people he's brought on or all the people that i was already listening to and watching and, and and liking a lot so it's a combination of he's really good and clearly he's got a lot of people he has good taste and has bring on people who get it uh it's probably the best way to describe if you're, if you're into levitard then you have to get it and that's important to, that he brings people along who are going to help that Uh, go follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Habistro, go listen to the pack your knives podcast, go pay attention to to Dan Levitard and everybody over at metal arc media. And uh, I I don't, I don't want to say Tom, you have to pack your knives and go, but I feel like I almost need to say that.
2: (laughs) You do. You do. Um, Thank you, Padma. Appreciate you uh, bringing me onto the show.
0: That's the best compliment I've ever had. Scary, but I appreciate (laughs) it. Thanks man. All right. That's it for this edition of the standard room only podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening for giving a crap about this podcast my writing on the athletic uh, me in general and i hope everybody is doing well i hope everybody's had a chance to or will soon have a chance to get away or you know look i don't know getting away is all relative maybe not everybody can get out of town but you know even if it's just getting away in your own space you you know finding your your happy place it's important it really is on all kinds of fronts i hope everybody has a chance to do that stay sane stay safe and uh we will talk soon <laughs>